should go without saying that God is very calculated in that everything that God does, He has a purpose for, and that His purposes are well beyond our ability to ever comprehend or understand. The Bible teaches us that His ways are higher than our ways. And so we can never fully understand the mind and the heart and the will and the motives of God. But one thing that is clearly undisputable is that of all the miracles that could have been done to, and we quote John here, manifest the glory of Jesus, of everything that could have been done for the first miracle, I found this one to be strange. It's not the raising of somebody from the dead. It's not the healing of somebody from leprosy. It's not giving sight to the blind but rather it's simply turning water to wine at a wedding feast, which by the way, had wine, but went out. It's not as if they had none. That this would be the miracle that Jesus would do to introduce himself to the world as God's answer to our problem. The more that I study this particular passage and had, you know, read commentary on it, time to pray about it, meditate on it, the one thing that I've become completely convinced about is that the miracle here of manifesting His glory has a lot less to do with the physical act of turning water to wine and a whole lot more to do with what God was communicating to His people. So first of all, understand that this is in fact a ceremony happening with God's people, the Jewish people. It is a Jewish wedding. Jesus' mother is there. Jesus is there. He's there with his disciples. And one of the things that Jesus comes to do is demonstrate that all of the ceremonies and all of the things things that these Jewish people were doing was doing nothing more than producing a dryness in their faith. They were a very dry people, empty of joy, empty of of true joy in their faith, and it had just become motions. Jesus comes, in essence, to say, I have something much better than dry religion. I have something much better than going through the motions. It is beyond dispute that the the, uh, concept here of of the wine at the wedding has a, uh, a tie to joy, a tie to celebration, a tie to fun, if you want to call it that. And one of the things that we see that's so important is that this very first miracle that Christ does, it teaches us that God desires for his people to live with joy. But what happens when your joy dries up? What happens in your life when the things that God designed in God's great creation, marriage, work, uh, parenting, All of a sudden, these things are no longer a source of joy, but they are a burden. How do we recapture the joy, as David said, the joy of our salvation? 
you will find that even Christianity itself can become burdensome when it just becomes ceremonies. When it's all the things you're supposed to do, the church services you're supposed to attend, the devotions you're supposed to read, the amount of minutes you're supposed to pray, the amount of service projects you're supposed to put in, the amount of money you're supposed to give. You will find that if that's what your faith is about, and it's not that those things are bad, but if that's what your faith is about, guess what? Your faith's dry. There's not a lot of joy in it. There's not a lot of uh, a fun in it anymore. So what do you do when your joy has dried up? Well, we see Jesus step into the picture and say, I am a picture of that answer. That I have the answer. That I am the answer. And that the will that God has for his people is not that our joy run dry, but rather that God be the solution to our joy. What do you do when the wedding has lost its wine? Still married, no more joy. The joy is gone. The excitement is gone. The enthusiasm is gone. The wedding remains, but everything has gone dry. You know, if you're not careful, you can lose your joy in this life. Maybe this was more of a crisis than it seems. What do you do when your life is no longer meaningful. What do you do when life feels empty? Your home, your church, your work. Many of us are dealing with something that once used to be wonderful, but the joy has ran out. Again, I will say, maybe this is more of a crisis than it seems at first glance. What can we learn from Jesus's first miracle? I want to I look at three lessons, and this morning my sermon is quick, it is simple, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll see that God's source of joy, the answer for joy, it really is not all that difficult. The first lesson that we learned this morning from Jesus' first miracle is this, God's will for His people is a life filled with joy. That's the first lesson we learn here. Jesus came to fix what was wrong. When you look at uh, Genesis and you see God's creation of mankind, you find it was not a life of work and toil. It was not a life of pain and sorrow. That sin introduced those things into this world. But God's original design did not have any of that in it. We see Jesus coming to restore joy. We see God's design for heaven, a place of eternal joy. The Bible even teaches us that there, there's going to be no sorrow, no death, no pain, no suffering, no more tears. Like, so we, it teaches us something about the character and nature of God. Now, here's why this is important, folks. In a lot of ways, we've lost sight of that in the church. We don't think God wants us to be joyful. We don't think God wants us to walk with joy. In some circles, it's even somehow like a, this badge of honor if you can do two things. One, be really sorry all the time and sad and gloomy and despair while simultaneously praising God. 
Like, that's the goal. We're going to talk about how bad things are and how terrible it is. And there's nothing that's good. And everybody thinks bad and no reason to laugh and no reason to dance and no reason to be joyful. <sighs> but I praise God. I mean, he's good, isn't he? It's almost like it's a badge of honor somehow. Listen to me. That's very different than true New Testament Christianity. When Paul and Silas were singing in prison, it wasn't some act of defiant praise where they really weren't real happy about things and really they were angry and depressed and sorry and they were just trying to fight past their emotions. It was a true song of joy, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It was a real song of praise coming up out of them. When the disciples skipped off rejoicing that they were able or or worthy to be persecuted, it was a very real excitement. It wasn't some act of, well, we don't like this life. Sure, it's tough being a Christian. whole world doesn't like us. And man, this is so hard. But let's just skip and pretend we're having fun. But that is, in so many ways, what modern day Christianity's become. In fact, in some places, it's almost as if it's almost as if it, you, you feel ashamed or you got to keep it a secret that you've got joy. I felt that way before. Quite honestly, I feel that way sometimes frequently. I'm like, we have to, all right, we have to pretend that we're sad. We have to pretend that we're sorrowful. We have to pretend that we're broken. And secretly, as soon as we get away, you know, we're having a good time. It's not that our heads are stuck in the sand and we don't realize the world's falling apart. Folks, this told us the world's going to fall apart. Ain't no reason to not walk with joy, though. There have been times where it's like, wow, I, 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 I used to battle, and I still do sometimes even, openly walking with joy. And I probably shouldn't, but I do sometimes because it's, it's like so many in the Christian world feel like we're just supposed to be sad all the time. And I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, that's not the case. We can have joy even in the midst of suffering and sorrow. And listen, biblical joy is very different than earthly happiness. Earthly happiness, let me explain the difference. Earthly happiness means that our happenings are favorable enough that it produces an attitude. I'm happy because my team just won. I'm happy because I just, something favorable happened to me. Something good happened to me. But then when bad things happen to me, now I'm not happy anymore. Listen, the divine joy that I'm talking about is deeper than that, folks. The divine joy that I'm talking about is rooted in something that is so good, so true, and so unshakable that all of the world could fall apart, and my joy still remains. The Bible speaks about this joy that is unspeakable. In other words, just like, I re- how do you even put words into that type of joy? One of the things that I contribute to, to uh, um, playing a role in joy is also inner peace. I think when you have inner peace, it's easier to be, have true joy. 
And I was thinking about the Bible also tells us that there's such a thing as a peace that surpasses understanding. And so I'm like, God, this morning, how do I communicate a joy that you can't even really speak of? How do I communicate about a peace for which words don't make sense? And what I want us to see is that this is the will of God. Like the joy that God gives, the peace that God gives is so real, so good, so true, it's hard to even put it into words. And it's something that I feel like we need permission. Like I feel like there's some people this morning, you need to just know that you can have permission to be joyful. Yes, the world's crazy. You can still be joyful. Yeah, bad things are happening. You can still be joyful. It's okay. But if you're like me, sometimes you feel like you have to hide it. You'd be surprised to know that probably three or four times a day, me and my wife dance. And it's normally goofy, right? It's not like slow dance, like, oh, let's dance like we love each other. It's like we, we have music going on all the time at our house. I do not like living without music. And it's like certain songs come on that make the feet want to move, and all of a sudden the feet are moving, and then it's like, okay. And most of the time, you know, we just kind of feed off of each other. Sometimes I'm working away, and like this song comes on, and I'm like, I don't want her dancing, but she's over like dancing next to me, and I'm like, <laughs> this is the truth. I'm not kidding. It's also true, we typically don't even care what the song is. There were Several years ago, there was, a, there was a time I'm like, you can only dance to songs you fully understand. And one time she was singing a song, and she was singing out loud while she was dancing to it. And what she was singing was not true. Like, that was not the words. And I don't, and she, but she really thought they were the words. I said, that is not the words to that song. She says, it's the words to my song. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> but you can, apparently. There's times we've been out public areas and like songs come on that make us want to dance and I'll look at Hallie and I'll be like Hallie's about to happen <laughs> she's like dad no stay sitting down it's okay to live with joy and I would go further than this I feel like sometimes we need permission for that but I would go further than this to say when we really study what God and his divine wisdom chooses to do um, with the first miracle of Christ, that, that, it's, that it's an expectation God has for his sons and daughters that we do live with joy. And so on my final two points this morning, I want to address the question of, like, what do you do, though, when your joy dries up? What do you do when it's like there isn't any joy anymore? Because as you know, it's not quite as easy as flipping on the switch. And so, if joy is to return, if what was once good has become dry, how do we revert course? And so, 
My final two points are on that. My first point has application. You've got to get it settled in your heart that God's will is for you to to live with joy. You've got to get that settled. But then I want to talk about what do you do? Like what are some things you can do to restore joy? So number two this morning, a life filled with joy requires expectation. A life that's filled with joy requires expectation. Now hear me out on this. If you're going to see joy restored to the dryness in your life, you must develop an attitude of expectation. And let me explain. So Mary realizes there's a problem. She doesn't know what the solution is, but she knew the one who did. And the very fact that she asked Jesus about it or points out to Jesus that we've got a situation, tells the people that are there, whatever he tells you to do, go do it, it tells us she had this attitude of expectation that Jesus does have an answer to my need. There is an expectation that must be developed. But you will find that the enemy wants to destroy your expectation. He wants to destroy hope. He wants you to settle for the mundane. He wants you to settle for, well, this is just how life's going to be. He wants you to settle for defeat. And for many, whether it's in the career, whether it's in parenting, whether it's in life in general, whether it's in marriage, you have accepted a sense of defeat where there's no real expectation that anything's going to change. But God works in an atmosphere of expectation. There is nothing harder to work in than in an atmosphere empty of expectation. I want to illustrate that with the church and then also just apply it to whatever area that that you you need joy restored. But let's talk about the church. You know, different churches have different atmospheres, and I'm not saying one church is better than another, and I'm not trying to, to be negative about any other churches, and I'm not trying to lift our church up. I, just, I want to make an observation that most of you will be able to testify is true in your own experience. When you show up to church and you are with a bunch of people who have absolutely no expectation whatsoever that God is going to do anything this morning, It impacts the atmosphere. God typically doesn't tear the roof off and force himself into that situation. Typically it's dry, it's barren, it's just ceremony. But on the other hand, when you show up to worship with a bunch of people who actually have an expectation, God's going to do something this morning. We're going to experience the Lord. We're going to sing, and literally, we're going to enter into his presence with thanksgiving. We are going to enter into his courts with praise. We are going to hear the word of God in such a way that it teaches us, that it impacts us, and that it changes us. You show up with a bunch of people who have that expectation, and the service itself is different. Because God does work 
in an atmosphere of expectation. And if you want to see joy restored to the dryness in your life, there has to be an expectation. You have got to develop that. There has to be a sense of, I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. But God, I know that you are able. I know that you're good. I know that you desire that, my, that, that, that I live with joy, that I have the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord in my heart. And so I have this expectation, God, that you are going to do it. Jesus provides an answer. He tells them, go fill the water pots. Jesus always has an answer. It's just not what we're looking for most of the time. It's interesting that he chooses the water pots. They were ceremonial. They were used for purification. It was a ceremony that the Jews would do before eating and other things where they would wash their hands in ceremonial pots. And so if Jesus comes to to really teach that the ceremonies in and of themselves are not enough to bring the true joy of heaven, then why use anything at all connected to the ceremonies? Why not just do something completely different? And I think that what God is teaching us here is that God's goal isn't to just take ceremony and chuck it out the door but rather that we use it for what it was intended to be used for. You'll find, you know, I'd ask the question, for example, why did you even come to church this morning? And you'll find the answer to that question often impacts what you leave with. Why did you come? Is it just part of your ceremonial life? You just go through the motions and do the things that, that you're supposed to, you think you're supposed to do? Or did you come with an expectation that through the ceremony, God is going to reveal himself to you? That through the ceremony, God is going to teach you more about who he is and more about who you are and what that means between the two of you. You see, the, the way that you see the ceremony, the, the way, and I would use the word use, the way that you use the ceremony has a huge impact On what you receive from it. And what God's teaching us is. We need to change our mindset. About the things that God has given us. The commands that God has given us. And understand they are ultimately meant to lead us to him. They are meant so that he might uh, be the source of our joy. The source of life. But the ceremonies in and of themselves are not bad. And I'm telling you folks. We are kind of living in a culture. That's beginning to see things that way. Like, I don't need church. I've got online church. Well, online church isn't church. It's just not. I thank God for online church. We're broadcasting live right now, but it's just not the same as church. It's not. Can you imagine if you had a virtual marriage? Now, I have a question. We laugh at that like that's stupid. But we don't, somehow, it's like we don't see that exact same truth about my connection to the body of Christ. And, 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 we, and it's not just that. It's other things where it's like a lot of the ceremonial aspects are like, well, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't need church. I don't need connection. I don't need discipleship. I don't need Bible study. I don't need this. It's like I've got my own thing with God. Listen, 
It's not that the ceremonies are bad. And I acknowledge you can be ceremonial to the hill and be dry and devoid of any spiritual life. That's what Jesus is teaching us this year. But I think it's significant that he chooses to use the water pots. There must be an expectation. You've got to have expectation that you are going to see God answer your time, whatever your need is in your time of need, God does have an answer. I've got to show up to church with an expectation. I've got to open the word with an expectation. I've got to pray. Whatever the need is, there's got to be an expectation. God works in an atmosphere of expectation. And then finally this morning, it's so simple, number three, a life filled with joy requires obedience to God. Notice the miracle happened this way. Mary asked Jesus to do something. Then he asked the people to do something. Isn't this how God works? I mean, you have to participate. You can't ask God to work on a problem that you won't work on. And it's real simple. Whatever he says, do it. Think about this, right? It's the first miracle that Jesus did. And we have this real simple statement. You want to see the joy restored. You want to see the wine flow. You want to see whatever your need is met. Whatever he says, do it. It is so simple. And yet, we typically just don't. We don't do it. Why don't we do what Jesus tells us to do? Why don't we do what the Word of God clearly tells us? You know, I think one of the reasons is because sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Like if we knew how it was all going to work, we would then do it. But I'm going to tell you something. That's not how God works. God doesn't tell you the beginning from the end. God doesn't have to. He just typically tells us what we need to do next. And either we do what he says or we don't. And the sheer number of people who never walk in the fullness of joy, who never really experience the the, the joy that God has to give, the sheer number of people who don't experience joy because they won't do what God says, I'm telling you, folks, it is a multitude of people that we could not number. Whatever he says, do it. Consider what he said. He said to fill the water pots. They weren't even drinking water pots. They were pots used for washing hands. They were purification pots. Notice they were 20 to 30 gallons each. I just want you to get the visual. 20 to 30 gallons. Even if they were only 20 which it says they were 20 to 30. It means they were probably different sizes. Imagine four five-gallon buckets. And then imagine six of those. And they were told to fill them with water. They did not have hoses back then. So he's got to walk. These servants, they got to walk to the well draw from the well one to two gallons at a time, take it, and pour it in the water pots. 
Now, would you agree that if they poured it in, and as they poured it in, it turned to wine, that would be a whole lot easier to say, well, this is working. Let's go get more. But that's not what happened. It's very similar to when Naaman was told to dip in the River Jordan seven times. He could have stopped it once, said, this ain't working. Could have stopped it twice and said, I'm not, you know, I'm not the percentage healed. It's not like he went down, got a little healed, went down a little more, got a little more healed. It wasn't until the seventh time, because that's what he was told to do, that Naaman was healed. Same thing with the water pots. I want you to picture these guys just going back and forth, back and forth, getting water, pouring it in, still water, going, getting them more, pouring it in, still water. Imagine had they done what most of us do. This is stupid. This ain't working. I tried church for two weeks and my life is still a mess. I tithed once and my finances are still crazy. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. You better believe it don't work. God never said it would. You got to do it his way and you got to do it all the way. And that's the only way that it works. A lot of people just trying to manipulate God. They think somehow God's going to be tricked by two weeks of obedience. God has a way of actually giving instructions that will test your faith and force you to see, are you going to do everything he said or not? Do what he says. And it tells us this. They were filled to the brim. In other words, they had done what they were told to do to the point there was nothing else to do. And at that point... When they drew from it and took it to the master, at that point, it becomes wine. You have to be obedient to the known will of God if you're ever truly going to experience joy. This point is so simple, but it is a key to the joy filled life that so few people are willing to embrace. It's almost as if we want to know, like, well, preacher, can I just do like half of what God tells me and have half of the joy? Listen, I don't know, actually. I don't know. Maybe. But I don't know. I think that's a terrible way to live. I think that's a dangerous way to live, and I, I certainly can't guarantee that. I can't tell you that if you do half the things God wants you to do, that you'll at least experience half the blessings. I can't tell you that. Based upon the Word of God, a lot of times it's like, no, you've got to do the whole seventh dip. Nope, you've got to fill them to the brim. No, you have to do exactly what he says. But here's the one thing I do know the Bible teaches us, that when we do what he says, then and only then, are we guaranteed the promise of his provision? And so God wants us to live with joy. He wants you to have joy. He wants us to live where his children are filled with joy. And I feel like, folks, I feel like this is important for our testimony. 
I, I feel like when a world looks at us, they should be able to see people who are not tossed to and fro by the daily news, but rather we are solid no matter what the daily news is. Even when the daily news is hard, they see a people whose hearts are ruled by peace and joy because our peace and joy is in something entirely unshakable. It impacts our testimony. It gives credibility to, listen, you need Jesus. He is the source of joy. And then what Jesus teaches us two chapters later in John chapter 4, he is the well that never runs dry. He is the source of life that when you drink from him, you will never thirst again. Years ago, there was a song that was really popular, and we used to sing it some, and I'm not knocking the song, and I'm not knocking the artist. I just remember this song hit me differently once I began to see this concept. And it was a song where we would sing over and over again, I'm desperate for you. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. And I remember thinking, but wait a second, Jesus said if we're drinking from him, we won't thirst. And I remember thinking, you know, the real reason that this is such a hit in this country is because we have a country filled with Christians that are hungry and they are thirsty because they're not drinking from the well that does not run dry. There is joy in Jesus. There is joy in truly living for God. This morning, I want to close. I'm going to go ahead and ask our worship team, why don't you guys get in place this morning? You've got to get involved. You can't ask God to fix a marriage you've already given up on. You can't ask God to to fix your life and restore your joy when you are constantly doing things that lead to your own downfall. And you've got to be willing, whatever it is, when you ask God with the spirit of expectation, God, restore the joy, you've got to be willing to do whatever He says. You don't have to understand the why behind it all, but you need to know, God, what have you said? This morning, I want to close with three statements to three different groups of people. First of all, if you're here this morning and you resonate with me when I said that, man, there's times it's like I feel like it's, I'm doing something wrong if I'm walking around with joy. And you needed to hear, it's okay to be joyful not only is it okay, you need to know that this is the will of God for your life. It's okay to be joyful and have this joy that's unspeakable, this peace that surpasses understanding, even in the midst of a crazy, terrible, awful, evil world. Because my joy doesn't come from any of that. We need joyful people. Secondly, I want to talk to those of you that maybe came in this morning and your joy has dried up. Listen, you've got to get it settled in your mind and in your heart that it is the will of God to restore your joy. It is not God's will that you live your whole life with sorrow and and pain and and suffering to such a degree that that it steals your joy and that it steals your peace. You need to get that settled. 
You need to have an atmosphere of expectation, and you might have to work on developing that in your life where you have an expectation that God is going to restore your joy. And you've got to be obedient to the things God's telling you to do. And third, this morning, maybe you're here, and you're like, hey, that's a great message to God's people, but preacher, I don't even know that I am. I don't even know the truth. I've ever been born again. I don't even know truly that I have a relationship with God. This morning, I plead with you turn to Jesus. Turn away from all that is in this world and put your faith in Christ alone. Turn from your own ways, your own thinking, and turn to Jesus this morning.